0: Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I am an author, capacity building, and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories, and philosophies that, if applied, will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. It is time for new thinking, new language, new habits, and new cultures that match the challenges and opportunities of today and tomorrow. Our destiny depends on it. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a productive day. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Odin. Now, today we'll be exploring a new leadership theory based on the book, We, the Leader, by Jeff Spann. And to have this conversation, I am joined by Jeff himself. Now, Jeff is a pioneer in leadership, forging a new evolved theory and practice of leading that meets today's challenges and opportunity. He has more than 20 years of experience pouring into the lives and the practice of leaders. Um, Jeff has drawn on his hands-on research and business leadership expertise to develop a proven process that transforms complexity into innovation and optimal business outcomes. He inspires leaders to move beyond the industrial age concept of collaboration, uh, also known as co-labor, uh, and reimagines traditional leadership hierarchies and embraces an innovative process of leading and following. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Span, Jeff, welcome.
1: Well, th- thank you, Ben. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation.
0: Now, up- upon reading your book. Um, I think in the first few chapters of your book, I was thrown off because you clearly um, articulated that we should move away from this whole idea of leading other people and transition into a philosophy or a mindset um, that's articulated as leading leaders. So getting away from leading others to leading leaders. Uh, Now, I was taken aback because the title of this podcast that we're on right now is um, Why Lead Others? And so funny enough, today I sent a message to my uh, web designer. I'm like, hey, can you check if um, Why Lead Leaders is available as a domain? Uh, just in case I actually switch to that. Um, so my question to you and i know you have a question for me as well um, why is this transition important and valuable and what is the cost of ignoring you know this transition from leading others to leading leaders
1: yes well i'd, I'd like to like to build on this because uh, others are are leaders too so there's there's two shifts here one one shift is from a framework that A leader leads other followers. And increasingly in the book, we talk about everyone showing up as a leader, fundamentally a leader of their own life. Mm. And uh, therefore, everyone is a leader in that sense of the word and within an organization. At the same time, as you well know and your listeners know, increasingly today's projects require a group of leaders to come from across an organization or across an industry to gather together to solve problems and, and to realize possibilities and so the fundamental principle here is the observation that an organization by definition is a group of leaders however At the same time, it's also a group of followers. I, for instance, everyone within an organization follows the common purpose. The CEO Mm. and the new hire are, are gathered together around following a common purpose. So that makes every leader in the organization also a follower. And so we have a community of leader followers. And the question becomes not just how do I lead followers or how do I lead leaders, but how does a community of leader followers lead teams, projects, and organizations? Hmm. So that's um, the, it's the framework, the, the, the view, the observation that our organizations are fundamentally egalitarian structures that need hierarchy. They, they aren't fundamentally a hierarchy that needs some egalitarian structure. I, I'm calling for that shift in reimagining the identity of an organization and the identity of the people within the organization.
0: Mm. Um, now, in the first chapter of your book, um, I think maybe even the introduction, I think, um, there's a quote where you say, what got you here won't get you there. Yes. And you go on to talk about, you know, this need to reinvent and to adapt and to change. Of course. And having read the book, and then you the way you framed, you know, this leaders, leading leaders, I am now thinking, is it a good idea to switch up the title of my podcast? Anyways, that's a different conversation. But what should this reality mean for 21st century leaders, right? that what got you here won't get you there, you know. Um, can you maybe speak a bit on this need for adaptability? And not just adaptability, but, you know, the need to be agile to change very quickly. Um, and I think events like COVID-19 is one of, a good example of that, where people were forced to change a lot of things very quickly. Mm-hmm. And those who refused, some of them got left behind. So... yeah. Why is it very important to embrace this idea that what got you here won't get you there? And what's the mental conditioning that leaders need to have to make sure that they don't idolize ideas that worked in the past, but rather, you know, are always, always in tune with what is working currently and what doesn't work anymore so that they can continue moving forward in pursuit of whatever mission or vision they're entrusted with.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, I want to, I want to mention that, that, Term the term "What got you here won't get you there" comes from Marshall Goldsmith, and and Marshall uh, has endorsed the book, and he's uh, he's a only person who's been the number one thinker, uh, the number one global leadership thinker twice. So I want to give him that credit because that's a title of it, really his one of his marquee books, and um, so. I'll start with uh, the term collaboration and work with that a little bit. And then I'd like to just outline the, the uh, <clears throat> evolution of leadership and, and talk about what, why what we did in the past is not enough to get us where we want to go in the future. So the word collaboration is a great word, and it's often used to talk about Elite leadership. We got people collaborating. And yet you look at the word collaboration and it's rooted in co-labor. And co-labor is an industrial concept and practice where basically one person created a vision and then or, or a group of leaders created a vision and then other people enacted that vision. And that was, in that time and place, that was fine. In today's world, with hyper change and spiraling complexity, no one person can understand what needs to be done. And if she or he does and communicates it, by the time they communicate it, the situation has changed. And so we need co-labor, but not enough. We also need co-creativity. We need innovation more and more and more in the moment. And things like the pandemic and things like the complexity of of life require us more and more to step up as leader followers and create new projects, have responses in the moment, in the front lines, in order to respond to the ever-changing world that's before us.
0: Now, coming up with a new theory for anything really requires that you must be someone that is, you know, is well-read and not just well-read, but you know, you have to need to have an appetite to read widely and deeply about a number of subjects. And the next question that I'm going to ask you really is a practice that we've developed to ask most of our guests who come on the podcast as a way to sort of like pick and find out a few things that have been Um, Life altering, um, and you know, that can be of value to someone else as well. So, one question that we ask our guests is this question that I call the 111, essentially, where we ask, What is the one book you wish you had read earlier in your career? Now, this is assuming that the book was published, and it could be a book that was published last year, but you say, You know what? I wish this was published 20 years ago, and I would have read it 20 years ago. Um, And then, What is the one habit you wish you had developed earlier as well? And the last one is, what is the one value, could be a personal value that you will not compromise no matter the cost?
1: Okay, well, the one book is easy to answer, and that's called The Profit of Management. And it should be entitled The Prophetess of Management. It's about mm. the work of Mary Parker Follett. And she was uh, she was in her heyday in about the tw- 1920s. We're talking mm. a decade ago. She, uh, no, not a decade, a century. A century, <laughs>
0: century ago. Yeah.
1: Yes, uh, uh, 10 decades ago. And she is a prophet of management. And in that book, you have the, the gurus of the time, and that would have been probably like the 70s or 80s, so I'm giving her homage for how she was so far ahead. And that is true. And it's even truer than what they're able to say and articulate in the book. But that book to me is the most important book on leadership. And more importantly, Mary Parker Follett's work herself. And I spent a summer in the library uh, near the I lived near a university here in Chicago. And, uh, uh, I was just amazed by this woman and her insight and, uh, and creativity and a true prophetess of, of, of leadership, uh, who we haven't yet caught up to. And I, I credit mm. her with, uh, a, a, a lot of, uh, insight and creativity and stimulation and inspiration on my part.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that book out. I haven't I've not read the book, so I'll definitely check it out. And and then what's the one habit you wish you had developed earlier? Okay.
1: Well, the one habit is the habit of observing myself in the moment. Mm. And so it's like, okay, like right now, the habit of like, oh, you know, I'm a fly on the wall, right? Or there there's or this is a live play. And I'm observing the uh, the live play you and I have in this conversation and Mm. I am in the seat observing myself and why I think, why that habit is so important to me is that between stimulus and response is space. And when Mm. I can create that space, then I can make choice and that choice In that choice is my freedom and growth. And that's a quote, a a paraphrase of a quote from Steve Cubby years ago, which is often credited to Viktor Frankl. Um, Mm. So that's that's the habit. Uh, And in the book, we talk about bossing yourself and that idea of observing oneself, building that habit and capacity on a consistent basis so that I'm not I'm not in a reactive state where, where I avoid someone or I lash out in anger. But I, mm. those feelings might come up, the fear and anger. But as I observe them, then I access myself to make a choice, to choose to be curious, to choose to be open up to wonder, to choose to be grateful, to choose to breathe, to choose to listen more deeply. The, the choice to
0: do all those things yeah and actually funny that you bring this up because i was going to bring it up later in the conversation uh, because you highlight this need of being aware of our options um, and consciously choosing to choose rather than just reacting impulsively so how yeah. do we master this skill that uh, you're saying right this habit how do we master that you know where we can become almost like you know we an outside of the body experience where we observe ourselves, our thoughts, and our emotions, rather than just impulsively obeying them or reacting to them.
1: Yes, yes. So, um, I've got I've got two responses. One is the the boss yourself exercise, which is B the an acronym the B for for the, the first letter of boss, breathe. You know, we all know the importance of breathing deeply athletes and artists and performers, you know, just take that deep breath. And there are many different ways of doing that, but the breath is one of our key allies and it it can access us to our energy in a way that not many things can. And that's what we're about. We're about mastering our energy so that we can channel it consistently to be creative and innovative, individually and collectively. And taking a deep breath and a series of deep breaths and opening up meetings and even conversations with just a pause, which is popular now and some of the commercials on TV, the power of pause. And so that's mm-hmm. the B. And then the O is observation, which I've already talked about, B, O. And then the S is select to select. Hey, I have an opportunity uh, in every moment to select, to choose. I'm not a victim ever. I can can behave like a victim, but in every moment I have the possibility to make my own choices, to select to select. And sometimes it's terribly challenging and it feels Mm. like I have no choice. And then that's mm. where the observation and the breathing comes in. But in every moment to remember, in every moment, we have the power as individual human beings to choose, to choose, to select, to select. And then from there to select, make that choice, which I outlined earlier, you know, to, to be more curious, uh, to ask that question, to take that deep breath, to step back and observe, to express gratitude and uh, any multiple of choices that we constantly have at our uh, disposal.
0: Mm, wow. Um, I, I like that framework and I definitely, uh, I'll use that because I think depending on what the issue or the situation, sometimes, you know, we say, you know, if somebody presses the wrong button, exactly, uh, then, you know, we just go off. But yes. I, I like this idea of always being in control. And I think, of course, you can never really practice imperfection, but I think um, progress is definitely, um, will be appreciated in this situation. Uh, yes. So that was the, the habit. Um, how about the one value you will not compromise no matter the cost?
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, well, to live my purpose. Uh, my purpose is to practice and perpetuate we the leader throughout the globe and to build a, a, a book, a movement, an organization that accomplishes that. And um I that's just a core value of my purpose, living my purpose.
0: Well, wow, purpose-driven life. Um that's yes. yeah. It's um it's interesting that one because I think it's the same for me where not living my purpose. Feels like a slow death. Where, yeah. I, and sometimes I joke and I tell people that you know I think it's <laughs> it's better that you don't know what your purpose is. Um, so then that way you can just exist ignorantly. But I think once you know, you can't do anything else but pursue that purpose. Uh, yeah. and I think I like the clarity of knowing that okay, this is a core value and this is something I will not compromise no matter yes. the cost. Now, in your life, personal life, in your business. I'm sure you've encountered a number of failures Um, in all the different failures that you've encountered. What is the one accidental failure um, that you're most grateful for?
1: Well, just that term, what failure am I most grateful for? It's like, Whoa, (laughs) you know, the mixed feelings come in. However, because those failures are often so painful. And for me personally, I express some of this in the book in reflecting is I went through a divorce and I never mm. expected that to happen. And that was very painful and life altering. But it it shook me up and rattled me in a way that was exceptional. And that I'm very, very thankful for and opened up the pathway for me to live a, a more purpose-driven life. And and so in that sense, I'm very thankful for it.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can imagine uh, how painful that was, and to have the maturity to look back and say, you know what? Yeah, that was a that was a pivotal moment in terms of how the rest of your life uh, is panning out. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Um, Now, in the book, you talk about the value of increasing our self awareness as a way of strengthening our ability to lead ourselves. Right. When you talk about this self leadership, now you highlight four questions. Uh, when you yeah. speak about this. So can you speak on the four questions uh, one needs to ask themselves uh, to expand their self-awareness? And what is the cost of not asking these questions? Because I think um, I like this push to become aware, to be present, uh, to observe what is happening. Now, there is a large group of people who live the op- the other way, right? Where no observation, um, no taking in any account of what's happening. It's just in the moment, do your thing you know, the show goes on. So what are the four questions? Why is it important to ask yourself those questions? And if one chooses to ignore this, what is the cost? What, what are we, you know, putting on the line?
1: Yeah. Right. Well, the four, the four questions, uh, and I, I suggest and I practice, uh, journaling these four questions, not, not 20 times a day, but periodically, particularly when I feel a strong trigger, Uh, Mm. And the questions are, the first one is, what am I observing? Notice I use the word observe, you know, I'm Mm. trying to get myself in that, in that observing space about what is happening, what this person just did or what circumstance was just created that I am, I I am charged about and, and, Mm. and write that out. And, and. And then I want to observe what's external, but with that observing is also what's internal. And so I write out my raw, crude thoughts and feelings. It's just for myself, you know, oh my, you know, Mm. just the rawest of feelings possible. The hatred, the anger, the despair, write it out. And a colleague of mine, Steve Mostyn at, at, at Oxford is, Strong on this power of journaling, because once I write it out, I'm separate from it. I can observe Mm. it. So because sometimes it feels impossible to separate myself from my reaction. But writing it Mm. out, I actually have a physicality and a a physicality and a physical experience of separating it from myself. And that can be very, very powerful. And Mm. then so that's the first question the observations of the external and the internal. Then is the what emotions are coming up? Now, a lot of times people say, uh, you made me feel this way or you made me feel that way. And I understand that there's an initial trigger that someone says or does, but I am always responsible for my emotions. So Mm -hmm. instead of saying I am angry and being defined by the anger, I notice the anger. Instead of being, I, I, you made me frustrated, and being a victim of another person's activity. I prefer. I am noticing my anger and frustration. So, from the observing to the noticing of the emotion, and emotion mm-hmm. is energy. E energy for motion, and so we want to learn how to transmute this negative energy into positive energy so we can move our lives, our teams, our organizations, our, our, our race forward. Mm. Third question. What am I thinking? What are the thoughts? What are the assumptions that I'm making? Well, you know, uh, she's not, you know, he's not listening to me and therefore uh, doesn't think I bring any value. And he keeps interrupting me, and uh, so I'm not gonna say anything. Uh, And that's an assumption, and often it's an accurate assumption, but to know that it's an assumption, not necessarily the act. And so to explore that and to be aware that, hey, I'm making some assumptions here about another person's behavior, or about the state of the world, or the options that we have before us—that checking of the mm. assumptions is huge. And then the fourth—the fourth question is: What do I desire in this situation? Mm. And uh, a lot of times, the initial c- answer to that is: I want that other person to change. <laughs> and. Uh, mm. And that's fair, uh, and, and, but what's the deeper desire in terms of your own response and what it is that you can control, that that you want, that you desire? So those are the four: the observing, internal, external, the emotion, noticing, and uh, uh, the emotion and observing it. What are the assumptions that are arising, and the certainty that that I feel that I have, and then. And then the, uh, what do I desire? And I can desire to understand more. I can desire Mm. to ask a question and I can choose that at any moment rather than judging.
0: Um, I mean, the third one is definitely hard. Um, Assumptions, because I think as soon as you frame something as an assumption or explore something as a possible assumption, you are technically almost admitting that you could be wrong. You don't actually have proof that this is an actual fact. And that requires a certain level of humility to say, okay, this could be an assumption rather than a fact. uh, Why this person is acting that way or why this situation is this way or why that thing didn't happen. Um, So I think, yeah, (laughs) self-awareness requires a certain dose of humility. So you can objectively look and observe. Otherwise, then the observation and everything you would do would be through the lens of wanting to prove whatever it is that you've already concluded is happening in that particular situation. Um, now, this model of leadership that you talk about, which I, you know, I would ask you to explain in a bit, technically is not coercive as you know, how many people essentially, especially in the past, would lead. Uh, it gives a lot of freedom to people and, you know, you use tools like inspiration to get people engaged rather than just, um, you know, requiring compliance and saying, you know, you have to do this because you're getting paid, you have to do this because it's your job or your responsibility. And people who hold on to that way of leading, there's always that fear of, if people are left to themselves, uh can they actually commit and fulfill their duties without being coerced without being uh told essentially what what's at stake if they don't know if you don't push that, can people truly be highly productive and can they you know show up in all their commitments and so in the book towards the end you know towards the middle of the book, you talk about this whole idea of accountability and There's a concept that I heard a while ago where, you know, like, how do you draw a balance between accountability and empathy? Because you talk, you know, this idea of empathy these days and emotional intelligence and creating a sense of community and a sense of understanding um, in all our, you know, various differences. And, but at the same time, as followers of a mission or vision, we're all held accountable on our parts in our particular roles. And so how do we, draw this balance between being empathetic in leadership yet holding each other accountable? Like how do we generate that balance? Yes. Well,
1: great question. Thank you, Ben. And very, very thoughtful. Uh, I want to suggest that we reframe the question from balancing Mm. empathy and uh, accountability which can be like an either or, you know, like you have the, the, the balance, uh, you know, going this way or that way to a harmony of accountability and empathy. And harmony is two different things coming together in a way that enhances both accountability and empathy. Because so, uh, sometimes they feel like it's one or the other. And uh, the ancient ancient wisdom verse that's coming to my mind is speak the truth in love. And so the the idea is is the love, the connection, the trust and accountability and empathy are, are two ways to get there. Um I I have been privileged enough to be coached in athletics and a friend of mine who is uh, a great coach and a friend and coach to me and he has the capacity to tell me the searing truth about me or about how I showed up or about what's happening. And initially it's like shocking and painful. But then it's like, wow. The the there's there's the empathy there. There's the there's the trust. There's the I'm in your best interest. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what the deal is no matter what, because I believe in you and I respect that you have the capacity to choose to grow from what is actual, not what what is not actual. And mm-hmm. so that is that notion of there you have that experience of accountability and empathy. I, I could tell a story. When I was at uh, University of Michigan, I was on the football team. I was a quarterback, but they switched offense to an option, and I was the last on the totem pole. I was the fifth quarterback of five. So I wanted to play some other position. So I thought I'd be a wide receiver. I went into the legendary coach, Bo Schembecker's office, and I said, hey, I want to become a receiver. And he looked at me and said, you know, it's not going to be any different for you at receiver than it is a quarterback. And that's not what I wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, I felt respected. I walked out of there feeling good about myself because he just told me the truth right in the moment. Not what I wanted to hear, but he respected that I could handle it and grow from it. And that was Mm -hmm. that was a, a, you know, a negative, but a wonderful experience. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and and this is something that you talk about in the book as well, right? This moving away from approaching certain things uh, like they are zero sum, right? Like the zero sum game. I think innovation is something that you talk about as well. Where I mean competition, sorry, where you say many of us really approach competition as something that results in winners and losers. There are those who win, and then there are those who. Lose, um, but that's actually maybe not the best way to approach competition, and then of course you use our biology to illustrate that as well. And that was a funny illustration, by the way, when I read that, but I was so I was like, "Ah, okay, yeah, makes sense. So this idea of really looking at certain aspects of life, really, and leadership as an attempt to bring two sides, two items, two ideas, two things to become one rather than two separate things in direct competition um, with one losing and one winning. Um, now, specifically, I would like to highlight innovation because that's something that you talk about as well, right? Where you, you know, and, and the question here that I'm asking is, how can we engage in competition that creates new things or that leads to innovation um, rather than competition that leads to winners and losers? Because I think in most cases, when you hear the word competition, in your mind you know there's a winner there's a loser because in most competitions in sports in many aspects of life really um if there's competition there's a winner and there's a loser and i think that's why even in things like relationships uh you know psychologists say you know if you if you try to compete in a marriage if you try to compete in a relationship not gonna end well because even if you know you win you lose in a sense because the idea of competition is always framed with winning and losing but you say, actually, competition can lead to a productive end. So h- how do we do that? How do we engage in competition that results in positive things, in new things, in innovation?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, the, the word competition is, is kind of interesting. And, so, and then I'll, I'll go to conciliance. So compete, compare, is in its fundamental comes from the word to work together. And and so it all depends on the perspective, um, you know. And I, I I don't know why this is coming coming up for me, but uh, you know, I've been in highly competitive situations, and um, uh, there becomes a, a mutual respect that is often not mentioned uh, as a result of competing, whether you win or lose. Uh, there is there is a, a an an uncanny kind of connection that can happen. Now, a lot of times there's bad feelings, you know, mm. uh, and so it just depends on the perspective you have. If you look at a wider perspective in society, the capacity to compete and then shake hands afterwards—that is a fundamental practice that uh, I think is healthy for for society. So now we want to take this into the notion of conciliance, which is two opposing ideas jumping together for something new and like procreation. We create Mm. new human beings by people of the opposite sex joining together to create a new human being. So this is not just some theoretical principle. Edward O. Wilson, who wrote the book consilience, this is says that this is the fundamental impulse of evolution itself. It's, this idea of opposing energies co- and perspectives coming together itself is what what is the heartbeat of life and it's the heartbeat of evolution. We don't create to the level we need to by getting with just with people we agree with. It's about getting with people who have different perspectives, different energies, mm-hmm. different experiences to create something new. And that's where, that's the foundation of, of we, the leader, that principle and practice.
0: Mm. Um, And of course, talking about the idea of we, the leader, right? Um, You essentially, in one sentence, I think that's at the beginning of the book, you talk about, you know, this evolution that's been happening in leadership theory um, to essentially where we are right now. And you believe that we are now in the Parnaki era, so to speak. Uh, and that's the way, you know, that's the better way of leading organizations, which is, this is idea of we the leader. So can you speak on that a bit? And the question that I would ask here is, do you think that's a leadership um, philosophy that would work in all contexts?
1: Okay. So the, um, just to kind of briefly, uh, evolution of leadership. Right? We have the the uh, solo leader, and that's the monarchy—one person, particularly the a king, king queen. who yeah. um, you know rules, and uh, often seen as the divine appointed in some level. And that's the history of it. And then kind of, and that's one leader, a solo leader. And then we had. A hierarchy. We kind of evolved to a hierarchy where we have one leader still, but also many leaders at the at the top. And hierarchy means to rule over another. And so there we have several several leaders or some leaders, and that is the hierarchy. So we had monarchy. Monarchy evolved to hierarchy, and now what I'm seeing, uh, observing, and experiencing is that we're evolving into panarchy for the reasons I said earlier. People are leading more of their own lives and uh, the world is so complicated. Leaders got to, uh, need to get together to solve problems. Um, and so more and more, we're moving into a panarchical system and, and structure.
0: Do you think this we leadership, we, you know, we the leaders, uh, do you think that system or that philosophy works in all contexts?
1: Yes, So thank you. And so the word evolve is very important to me here. So evolve to me means to include and transcend. So the panarchy and we, the leader, includes the command and control of the solo person. There's a time and place for that. It includes several leaders and the sharing of leadership where you lead or follow depending on the situation. And it includes, and to me, it's the primary feature that we're evolving to is to learn to leader followers to learn together to how to lead projects, teams, and organizations. That to me is the next step. That we're all we're moving into this realm where we're all leaders of our own lives and increasingly leaders of an organization. And so, how do we make that work? Uh, and that includes. The others, uh, the the monarchy and the hierarchy, and transcends
0: it. Mm. Um, and, and of course, you you mentioned there. I think when you talk about the evolution, right, from monarchy to hierarchy and to per- panarchy, where, where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to hierarchy, right? Because in most organizations, that's sort of like the operating philosophy right now, right? There's right. A, there's a hierarchy, and that's sort of like how things work. Uh, and then, of course, you. In the book, you talk about, you know, how hierarchy in and of itself, sort of like, it's it's a good thing uh, because, you know, it's it's functional and it's practical, but there's a danger um, as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's yes. going back to that whole idea of, you know, observing and always being aware. So how do we restrain hierarchy so that it does not steer from being a facilitating system to becoming a controlling system? Because I think yeah. in, in most cases where hierarchy is dysfunctional, it's because hierarchy has become a controlling system rather than a facilitating system. So how do we how do we make sure that we stop, you know, that from happening?
1: Ben, I love the way you say that in terms of hierarchy, uh, being a facilitating system rather than a controlling system. Uh, because, you know, who wants to be controlled? You know, uh, more yeah. and more people are wanting to live their own life and to live out their purpose in the context of others with a shared purpose.
0: You also talk about this whole concept of achieving collective flow. And yes. I thought it was a fascinating idea, but I was really wondering, how do you actually go about achieving this, especially in large organizations? Yes. Um, so maybe if you could speak a bit about you know, what collective flow is, and at the same time, is how do we achieve collective flow when leading a diverse group of people in a Parnaki style you know, organization. And of course, you talk yeah. about you know, uh, diversity and, and equity and inclusion in the book as well. And in yeah. that flow, how do we achieve collective agility? Something else that you talk about in the book as well.
1: Yes. So let's just step back and take a look at, at collective flow. And this relates to, to the need for structure. Flow requires two things, energy and structure. We think of a river right? A river is not just energy of water. It also has a structure of the banks that channel mm. the water in a certain direction. If there are, are no banks, we don't have a flow, we have a flood. And mm. if, if there is no water, we, we don't have a river, we have a ditch. We just have a, a, mm. a ditch. And there's this harmony of structure and energy. I use that word harmony intentionally where the, the, the energy can enhance the structure and the structure can enhance the flow. And that's, to me, hierarchy is one way of structuring uh, and often a very necessary way to do that. And so mm. there, we, there we set it up in terms of then hierarchy, as you mentioned, is, becomes a, a, a container or a way to facilitate the flow of energy. And so this is then the mindset needs to shift from controlling someone else to, mm. oh, my job as a leader in the organization is to facilitate this this collective flow. And we talk about the decision-making model as a structure for flow, and we could go into that. We talk about the skills of learning to lead one's own life. Uh and and that be- can become a structure to learn how to do that. How do you hold meetings? You know, how do you have conversations? Uh, how do you make decisions? Are all all the necessary structure for the creative flow of opposite energies to innovate consistently and and creatively?
0: So, correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically you're saying that to you know one of the most efficient ways to um, create a culture where there is collective flow is by having, whether it's models or frameworks that are repeatable, right? That everyone yeah. can tap into um, in either making decisions, in communicating with people, in, in getting things done, in moving right. things forward, so that we all use the same frameworks, frame models, same models and everything yeah. else. But then if that is the case, um, how do we leave room to sort of like upgrade and update those models, right? Because um we want to have that flow, but at the same time, um, we want to leave room to adapt and everything. And of course, when you talk about this idea of collective agility as well. So how yeah. do you how do you get everybody, you know, flowing together and then suddenly you have to change, making that shift and that okay. turn together? I mean, how does that yes. happen?
1: Yes, yes. So the key, a key component here, one is what I've already said in terms of uh, the relationship between structure and energy and the need for an operating system. And we, the leader, mm. is an operating system. By operating system, I mean a way of communicating, a way of having meetings, a way of making decisions, etc.
0: cetera.
1: Mm. Right. And so the, the, a key core practice is what I call curious conviction. And this curious, practicing and inviting others to practice a curious conviction is, uh, creates the energy I'm, talk- I'm talking about and in the context of a structure. And so when I first approached this or came up with this, this uh, way of thinking about it and describing a core practice for uh, we the leader as an operating system of consistent collective flow, Uh, a a top executive at a financial company, global financial company said to me, Hey Jeff, I know how to bring a curiosity in one moment and I know how to bring a conviction in another moment, but how do I bring a curiosity and a conviction at the same time, a curious conviction? And Mm -hmm. that it to me is a core question. Uh, And a core practice for sustaining consistent collective flow. And I could talk about what the three steps to that if you would like. Uh, but that's, yeah, definitely. that's that's the key. The first step is, we've already talked about it to some extent, is to believe in consilience, that the jumping together of opposite energies, the different perspectives, the, the uh, different experiences – and th- instead of judging them or avoiding them or dismissing them, celebrate them as an opportunity to create something new together, to make the world a better mm-hmm. place, which so many of us want to do. So it's believing in that. And there are ways of expressing that belief that we could talk about. And then the second is to bring your conviction, bring your conviction as a piece of the conversational puzzle or the project puzzle or the organizational puzzle. It's a equal, different and vital piece, but it's not the whole thing. If if I think it's the whole thing, then I wanna convince you to think like me, but the puzzle has different pieces to it and those different pieces come together and then we see something that we haven't seen before. So bring your convictions as a piece of the evolving conversation project puzzle. And the third third thing is be constantly curious. And that fits in on the observer. I'm constantly observing, suspending my judgment, suspending my mm. certainty, and constantly be observing. Oh, what, what else is possible? What's emerging here between our differences that maybe no one has thought about this, holding mm-hmm. that, that presence and asking those kinds of questions. So believing in consilience, bringing a curious conviction, uh, uh, your conviction as a piece of the conversational puzzle and being constantly curious.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I, like, I like that model. Now, as we're drawing to the end of our conversation, yeah, um, what words of encouragement do you have for emerging leaders?
1: Well, I gotta say, Ben, I, I am very excited about where we are. I mean, we, I mean, as a human race. Um, mm. Yeah, we've got our challenges. We got a war in Ukraine. We got a pandemic. We've got, genocide happening. Uh, We got all kinds of problems. But we are evolving in the midst of this. Just the the way I outlined the leadership is evolving. And I just want to say we can make a difference through our differences. Mm. We don't need to avoid each other. We don't need to fight each other We need to develop a new framework that our differences are an opportunity to create and develop the skills to boss ourselves and to practice a curious conviction. And we can generate and have a next level of innovation is waiting to happen. I think about this the Wright brothers created flight, which is actually a miracle. And it took Mm -hmm. them a while to do that. We need innovation like that, not every century. But every 100 days and mm. on that kind of level of innovation, we need that kind of innovation to solve our problems. And we're capable of that. And we just need mm. to reframe how we approach our collective innovation and how we lead each other and rethink it, get a conceptual framework, uh, develop a s- operating system and new skills. And that's what we've talked about today And We the leader.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, This was very, very useful uh, to me personally, and and I'm sure it's going to be useful to a lot of our listeners. Uh, So thank you for your time, and thank you for taking the time to actually write this book. I don't know when exactly you wrote it, but I know it was published this year. Uh, But I think you start off the book by, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, it's coming out in the midst of the pandemic. So am I right to assume that you started writing this book during the pandemic,
1: yeah. Well, I actually started uh, a, like three months before the pandemic.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. It wasn't a pandemic, baby.
0: <laughs>
1: it, was, <laughs> it, it, it was started before. It was conceived before then. But then, you know, then uh, I I spent a couple of years mm. writing it for sure. Mm.
0: Yes, it was. Now, uh, it I- was. Uh, go ahead. Speaking of pandemic babies, uh, this podcast is a pandemic baby. And you asked me before we we started recording, right? Like, how did I land on this title? Why lead others? And because, of course, the company is called Why Lead Consultancy. And because we believe that the the question why is a very important question to ask. And so setting up the podcast, I think when we go to some of our clients and we tell them you know we're doing leadership training and recently i came across a client who was like you know we don't really need training for our leaders because you know they they've they're good they've done enough training uh we need training for these other ones right like these yeah. are the ones that need training not not the and of course when they said that i laughed <laughs> and i yeah. said well we define a leader as anyone who influences somebody else to take action. And by virtue of that definition, everyone in your organization is a leader from the lady who is at the reception you to got the guard. It. Everyone is a leader there because they're all influencing everything, right? Yes. So when I say leader, I don't mean a particular group of people who have titles, manager, supervisor, you know, uh, chief this, chief that. But I mean, everyone within your organization, there's different levels of leadership, but ultimately we were all leaders. So going back to why did I say, why lead others? I think when we're coming up with a name, um, because we know that to us, everyone is a leader, um, it the others wasn't necessarily a reflection of, oh, um, these other ones who aren't supposed to be leaders, yeah. you know, inherently yeah. by yeah. whatever. Uh, that's yeah. not necessarily what we meant. But I also, the more I learn about, you know, this idea of how language is very important, especially the framing of things, I'm going to have to rethink, you know, this title and everything we, because this is the second time it's happened in I think less than a month. So, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. But well, yeah, we'll thank see, you so we'll much see, for we'll
1: see where that goes. I think your insight about that with the mutual influence. We're we're just constantly mutually influencing each other. We can't get away from it no matter where we are in the organization. And to reference Mary Parker Follett, she calls that circular response, that it's constantly mm. happening. Even as we prepare for this podcast, we, we're 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 thinking and influencing each other, and as we've had this conversation, it just never stops. And so that's yeah. the insight of of uh, you know, er, er, if the definition is mutual influence, it's constantly happening.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much, and I think thank to you. our dear listeners, um, you can go to Amazon and you can just type "We the Leader," and the book should come up. Uh, Or you can go to the website, www.weavetheleader.com. And of course, I will leave the link on the show notes of this episode. And you can just click there and you should be able to uh, access the book and access him directly. And if you want to connect, um, he has an organization that, you know, they do uh, engagements with organizations. So I will put all those uh, links on the show notes. Again, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, And yeah, hopefully this will not be the last time. Um, whenever you have anything, you're, whether it's another book that you're releasing or a framework that you've uh, come up with or a new theory, you're always welcome to yep. the podcast to have these conversations.
1: That sounds fabulous, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: This has been the Wild Others podcast brought to you by Why Lead Consultancy. Wild Consultants is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to ww.wileedothers.com.